If you have no children, although our passage today deals with raising children, you may someday. And if you don't, one of the greatest roles you could play in a church is to help other people with their children, as a number of you do who don't have children of your own, and mothers speak so highly of it. And for all of us, we can certainly pray about raising our children. Here's the verse from Hebrews chapter 11, the famous chapter of faith. Verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is a series of God taking us through people from days gone by who lived by faith for the benefit of those of us who are reading it today. And today we come to Moses, who was a man of faith who stood up to Pharaoh and eventually led the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus to the Promised Land. It's easy to forget sometimes that people who are great were shaped largely by their parents. And Moses is no exception to that. Moses' story actually begins centuries before he was born in the book of Genesis with his ancestor, Joseph. Joseph was a young man who found himself kidnapped and sold into slavery and found himself in Egypt and landed in an Egyptian prison. And yet he was a godly man. While he was there, God gave him the ability to interpret other people's dreams. Word got around to Pharaoh who had had alarming dreams. Joseph was called up to stand before the great king, interpreted Pharaoh's dream, in doing so saved Israel, uh, Egypt and the rest of the world from real disaster, and he was made the number two leader, the prime minister under Pharaoh. Joseph's family then, that was still living back in Canaan in what would become the promised land, were invited by Pharaoh to come and live there in Egypt. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, along with his 11 brothers in a group of 70 people moved from what was, we know now as Israel down to Egypt. They settled in, quote, the land of Goshen. Goshen is a portion of Egypt. Everybody knows that the Nile River runs the length of Egypt, but at the top, it breaks into various streams and rivers, and the land there is unusually well-watered and rich. And so since Jacob and his family, when they moved down to Egypt, came with flocks and herds, and that the Egyptians needed those animals, but the Egyptians rejected and loathed the thought of being a shepherd, Pharaoh allowed the Israelites to live in the delta, in the area of Goshen, which did several good things. One, it wonderfully fed grass to their animals, but two, it was isolated from the rest of Egypt, and therefore the contaminating influences of Egyptian religion did not well reach the Israelites for a long time. This was God keeping them safe for a good long while. They prospered and they multiplied greatly in number. Now, Joseph lived about seven decades after his family came down. And all this of Joseph's time there and his great 
leadership in Egypt and his years to follow were all during a time when the Egyptian pharaohs were quite strong and when they had an influence well beyond their own borders. And the pharaohs were benevolent to the Jewish people because of all that their fellow Jew, Joseph, had done for Egypt. But about 75 years after Joseph died, a group of foreigners from the north came down and began to invade Egypt and seep over its borders. They took the country only gradually. They were known as the Hyksos, in case you remember that from high school or college, and it was probably their first ruler who was described in Exodus 1 verse 8 when it says, then a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know about Joseph. These foreigners couldn't care less about ancient history in Egypt. What they cared about was right now, we've got the reins of government and we're gonna start a new day. And the first area they conquered in their gradual overtake of Egypt was the Delta in the Northeast, the land of Goshen. Therefore, the Jews were the first to come under the thumbs of the hated foreigners, the Hyksos. Now the Jews had multiplied and the foreign Invaders who are now in power were scared that the Jews would join forces with the deposed Egyptians. And so they began under their rule to impose slavery upon the Jews. They imposed slavery, they limited their freedom, they kept the Jews occupied and exhausted under the shadows of the pyramids and under the whip of the Egyptian taskmasters. Both the cities of Python and the one that was later called Ramses was built by the Jewish people and other slaves like them in that area. They labored with unbelievable difficulty. If you see the massive stones, whether live or by pictures, of the buildings they built, it's amazing it could be done before the age of modern technology. A good while later, the Egyptians threw off these foreign invaders, and now they regained control and the rise of the greatest period of Egyptian history ever, the 18th dynasty, came about. This was the age now of famous pharaohs. The thrones of Egypt in these times were stronger than they had ever been in Egypt's history, and Egypt had the strongest military in the world. They had an international empire. Their, their, um, their land was at the peak of culture and education and prosperity all on the backs of Hebrew slaves. And now the pharaohs of Egypt, not the foreigners, were interested in continuing this slavery of the Jews because they did not want the Jews to rebel and cause trouble. And yet despite all their efforts, the Jewish population did not diminish. It only grew. And Pharaoh needed to find a way to stop this rapid growth so early on in this famous 18th dynasty, a pharaoh decided to make an initial attempt of what in the 20th century was called the final solution to the Jewish problem. The midwives were commanded to kill every boy who was born. The girls you can let live. But the midwives, we read, feared God, and they dragged their feet, and they made excuses why they couldn't get there in time, and their bravery is talked about in Exodus chapter one. And this did not then do the job the pharaohs wished. And so a second attempt was made 
and the second attempt was significantly more serious against them. In all likelihood, scholars disagree, but I'd say the majority of evangelical scholars tend in this direction that it was under the third king of this 18th dynasty, the I, that now that the Jews were well over a million people, he gave the order in Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to, and here's the significant word, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Let every girl live, but every boy that is born to you must be thrown into the river Nile. Do you understand? This is the command to be born in every household by the parents of that house. Now, in one of the towns in the north of slaves, doubtless in the most modest of homes, was a Jew named Amram and his wife named Jochebed. God had given to Amram and Jochebed two children so far, a boy named Aaron who was now three years old and a girl named Miriam who was some years older, probably around age 10, 11, 12 it seems. And now this devout couple was given a third child by God, a boy. We do not know the name that the parents gave to this boy. But these parents knew who they were. They knew they were slaves, yes, but they knew that slavery was not their primary identity. They knew that three and a half centuries earlier, when their ancestors had arrived in Egypt from up in Canaan, Jacob with 11 of his sons, the 12th son Joseph was already there, they knew that one of those sons that arrived was a man named Levi. They were descendants of Levi, and Levi was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. That's who these people knew they were. And they knew that the only God in the entire universe had appeared to their forefather Abraham and had promised Abraham to be his God and the God of his descendants. The God of the universe told Abraham that I have chosen you and your descendants out of all the people on the face of the earth. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would become slaves in Egypt for 400 years but that God would curse those who cursed the Israelites, would bless those who blessed the Israelites, and God promised at the end of those 400 years to bring his people back to Canaan, to the land of milk and honey, and give it to them as their inheritance. And God said to Abraham, you and your descendants are to worship me, Jehovah, alone. So here was a little hut surrounded by abject misery and surrounded by abject spiritual darkness and yet from its windows beamed this gleaming light everywhere from the nature of these parents in this little family. Now our text says that Amram and Jochebed, we learned their names from the book of Exodus, saw that the boy was no ordinary child. 
The word no ordinary in both the Old Testament and New is just a single word. The, the, the versions render it a beautiful child or a fine baby. Literally, just a good baby. Both in Hebrew and in Greek, that's the idea. And, and you, well, what kind of good? Well, it's a broad word. It could mean good in one, how one acts, a person is well-mannered. But it also can be mean good in personal appearance, how one looks. And that's what it probably means here. This baby was well-formed. He was beautiful. His cheeks were pinchable. He was uncommonly attractive. What's the significance of that? Why does the Bible mention it? Well, clearly, parents would have loved naturally for any of their children, but they were doubly moved by the appearance of this little baby. Apparently, everyone who stuck his head in the door said, my goodness, look at that child. That was the idea. And so the versions render it when they saw how healthy the boy was, or when they saw how robust the boy was, or when they saw how perfectly formed and lovely he was, they hid him for three months. The idea is this, to kill any of your children would be miserable beyond words, but to kill this particular child just seemed absolutely unthinkable. Now, many readers of the Bible over the centuries believe that when the parents saw his beauty, that they saw it as a mark of God's intention to use the child in an unusual way. That view started as far back as the early church. It continued on all the way through the Middle Ages. Uh, his appearance, according to this view, and it really may be true, was taken by his parents as a sign that God intended something special for him, that God had destined this boy to accomplish great things, and therefore unthinkable to throw into the river. I don't know if the parents thought that far that the beauty of this child is a special mark from God. But in any case, what they did think is this, my goodness, what a special child. It doesn't matter what Pharaoh says, we will not kill him. And so for three months, they hid him. <clears throat> but hiding a child for very long is impossible. And when they really get their lungs, babies cry loudly, what to do? Now, most Egyptians in the length of the country lived near water because most of the country on either side of the Nile is desert until you get close to its banks. And so Egyptians would view the Nile. And the parents of this boy would view the Nile. On it, they would see skiffs, boats, plying their way along the great river. Later, Centuries later, Isaiah would write in Isaiah 18, 12, he would describe the Egyptian papyrus boats moving over the water. Now, every home in Egypt and pretty much in the Near East had papyrus baskets. It's what you carried fruit in or bread or fish. And so an idea forms. And the parents said to themselves, if Pharaoh commands that all boys be taken to the Nile, then to the Nile he will go. But we will not put him under it. We will put him on top of it. And the Bible is clear about the exact method that Moses' mother, of course the father was involved, took. Exodus 2 verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and covered it with tar and pitch 
And then, and I would add doubtless at night, she placed the child in it, covered it, put it, here are the words, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Among the reeds along the bank, the boy was hidden from the men passing by in their boats. Along the banks in the reeds is where women come to bathe, to wash clothes, and to prepare food. Jochebed and Amram knew very clearly that if they were caught, they would be dealt with most severely. An example would be made of them. We don't even know the horrors that awaited a family that would do this. But our text says, by faith, Moses' parents, when they saw he was a beautiful child, hid him for three months. Our text says, by faith, they were not afraid of the king's edict. It does not mean they didn't have a lump in their throats, I don't think. It means they were determined to refuse to kill the child despite the lump in their throat. And doubtless they prayed, may the God of our fathers have mercy. Now this story is exactly what the readers originally in the first century of the book of Hebrews needed to hear. They, those readers, were Jews. They were Jews who had become Christians. And they were being persecuted terribly because of their Christianity. They were under the Roman Empire, so they could relate to a story about the king's edict. And they sensed that the days of toleration under Roman rule were probably waning and may soon be over. And they needed to take risks with their treasured children. And so this reached them very strongly, and I hope it reaches us today. Now here's how the story unfolded. The sister of this little boy keeps a safe distance. She has, I say, probably around 10, maybe 11, maybe up to 12, to see what would happen. But what happens, she in no way expects. Exodus 2 says, then the daughter of Pharaoh went down to the Nile to bathe. This is astounding. Along the riverbank, she sees a basket among the reeds. She sends her slave girl to fetch the basket. And Exodus, in its understated way, is powerful and eloquent. Exodus writes, she opened it and saw the baby. By the way, I've never thought about this till this moment. But Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Can you imagine him writing this? She opened it and saw the baby. And he was crying. And she felt sorry for him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Exodus reads like a novel here. You cannot improve upon it. Exodus 2 verse 7. So the boy's sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, take this baby and nurse him for me. I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And thus, with this sister, when she went to the Pharaoh's daughter, 
the young boy became legally safe, as safe as a person could possibly be. And the mother is allowed to nurse and raise him, and the mother is put on the payroll of the royal treasury. And therefore, Amram and Jochebed did not have to worry about poverty anymore. Now, what's significant, I think, and a, and a door into where we want to end on this is this. It is how the baby was named. As I said, the Bible does not tell us the names that his birth parents gave, the name that his birth parents gave to him. Instead, we read, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, saying, quote, I drew him out of the water. Moses. Now, Moses was a Hebrew name. It means to draw out or to pull out. But most scholars agree it's from an Egyptian root, which means to be born, because it means that when you're born, you were pulled out. That's the idea. And so the Egyptian word, to be drawn out, pulled out, found its way into the Hebrew language. Now, the Egyptians had many gods, but there was one god in particular I find whose picture extremely obnoxious, his name was Thut. Thut is pictured as a man with the head of a baboon or the head of a certain type bird with a long beak. In all probability, the Pharaoh who was on the throne at this time was named for this god. He was named Thut gave him birth. That is, Thut drew him out and it's pronounced Thutmosis. I drew him out, said Pharaoh's daughter, and she called him Moses. Do you hear the similarity between the names? This is no accident. From the beginning, the boy had a foot in two worlds, the world of the Hebrews and the world of the Egyptians. After he is weaned, his pagan Egyptian mother will have this boy in the royal palace for 35 plus years. His Hebrew parents will have him for a maximum of three to five to put into their son the knowledge of the true God. So what lesson do we learn from a verse and an account like this? Two lessons, at least. The first one, it is absolutely necessary for believing parents to trust in the sovereignty of God when they think about their children's future. This is an absolute must. Amram and Jochebed lived in scary times. You, Christian, live in scary times. God has never changed, and he is the God of scary times. Alfred Edersheim reminded us, I thought it was well put, that Pharaoh's very command to destroy Israel is what led to its deliverance. Because if it wasn't for the command of Pharaoh to cast the baby into the Nile, Moses would never have been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. The hand of God was steering even the throne of Egypt at the apex of its secular power. 
And yet, Moses' parents died before ever seeing Moses become a godly man. They did not live to see the exodus of Israel, but they lived in the spirit of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And they led in the spirit of Job, of whom it is said in Job 1.5, early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And here's the verse. This was Job's regular custom. These people, in the most impressionable years of their son's life, night and day poured into him who they were, who he was, who God was, and what God had promised to his people. Which leads to our second and last point. It is the absolute responsibility of parents to raise their children from earliest days to know the one true God. From earliest days, I say, it's not for nothing that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22.6, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. What does this look like? Well, to answer this question, I, I ask for the input of any number of young parents in our church, and I heard back from eight families, a total of 16 people. I would just like to read for you from the kinds of things they said. I wish I could read all. I have seven pages. I wish I could read it all. Let me just take snippets of what it looks like to train a child who is young in the faith. None of these people except one is out of their 30s. What is very clear from everybody who writes in is that the Bible is absolutely central in their home and does not just sit on the shelf or get a token nod. So, for instance, here is what one person wrote. In the evening, <clears throat> our family reads straight from the Bible. This will typically reach the older kids more than the younger, but we do read from the contemporary English version, which helps. As the kids get older, we'll move to a different translation. I have learned that I don't always have to provide commentary. Sometimes just reading and going straight to prayer is best. Other times, questions from the passage are obvious, and I'll encourage discussion. Parents talked about sometimes reading single verses, sometimes reading whole chapters. One family talked about reading through the entire Bible with their child, maybe it was two families. I know this goes on even broader than that. These families talked about memorizing, memorizing catechisms and memorizing scripture. Four families mentioned that they work through catechisms with their children. There's a simple catechism called the New City Catechism with just very brief questions and answers that even a three-year-old can understand. 
Then there's the Harder Westminster Catechism that the parents work through with children much younger than you may be inclined to think they can do because kids can memorize like this when you can memorize like that. And therefore, for instance, here is what one family said. Because mornings are rushed, I rely on repetition and memorization. We've memorized chapters of the Bible. We've memorized creeds and catechisms this way around the breakfast table. I will print off whatever we are memorizing in large print and give each child a copy. I encourage them to mark up the page and underline the phrases and so forth. For whatever reason, it helps them to each have a personal copy with their name at the top. You get the sense maybe this takes a little bit of planning and some work. It's not just the easy thing in the world. That's not only memorizing a catechism, whose benefit I strongly urge to you, but it's memorizing the Bible. Here's what one family wrote. Bible memory, we choose simple key verses that hit important doctrines. Examples, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. With their older child, I use a small notebook, and he got to put a sticker on each verse as he mastered it. With the younger child, she mostly fills in the blanks rather than saying the whole verse. But even at age two, she soaks it up with lots of repetition. These families not only read the Bible, they not only memorize with their kids, and by the way, the parents are trying to memorize, and the parents have a tougher time of it, but they're working on it. They sing with their children. Six families out of the eight say we sing always when we have family devotions. So, for instance, on page, oh, it doesn't matter what page. For instance, listen to this. We sing the same hymn every day for a month, discussing different vocabulary or meanings throughout the month. You think this kid doesn't know the hymn words after a month of singing it every day? Pushed in a grocery store cart, sometimes singing at the top of their lungs, holy, 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 right by the green beans. That's what happens. Or here's what another family said. We learn a new hymn every month. We rotate which child gets to pick the hymn of the month. Our two-year-old always requests Holy, holy, holy. No harm in repeat selections. Read the Bible, memorize, and sing. By the way, both of the quotes I, I read here had children as young as two that were brought into that. And they said that it helps the younger ones sometimes to be given a job. Okay, it's your job now to go get the hymn books and bring it to the kitchen table where we're going to gather so they feel apart. They not only read the Bible, they not only memorize, they not only sing, they pray. Here's what one wrote. Variety in prayer is good. Sometimes we intentionally don't ask for anything, but just praise God. Or maybe we pray only for people outside our family. 
or for a different country. Each of us will pray in the evening. Sometimes our younger kids don't know how to pray. When this is the case, my wife and I will pray sentences that the kids repeat. This helps them be involved and learn how to pray. When do these parents do it? Some in the morning, some in the evening, many of them in the morning and the evening. Here's what somebody wrote. We do daily morning devotions, squishing on the couch to be near each other, reading the, the little devotional table talk and praying and singing before we leave the house. And then we gather after dinner before bed for a time of family worship. Squishing on the couch again to be near one another helps mom and dad be able to pay attention to wiggles and scripture at the same time. Reading scripture and discussing, taking prayer requests, and having each child pray daily, quote, remembering the needs of others and remembering our own need for daily repentance. And then we close with each child choosing a song and we all sing to the Lord together. These people mentioned strongly taking their children to church, regularly taking their children to church. Quote, we take our child to worship every week. Quote, every Sunday we tell our daughter, listen to this, as she walks into church, that these are her people and we have her talk to a different new person every week. You think children can't learn these things. They learn them from us. I was talking with uh, someone on staff recently. We were talking about children's Sunday school and the need we have for teachers and room. And she said, as she has said to me in past years, her greatest sadness is to look at the attendance sheets at our children's Sunday school and see the number of children that will be here one week, not here two weeks, here two weeks, not here three weeks, here a week, not here a week. This falls directly to the parents. And brothers and sisters, we will reap what we sow. If you don't attend church every week, even when it's not convenient, your children won't grow to do it either. If you find it difficult to go to Sunday school, your children will. If you don't attend prayer meetings, your children are not going to grow up to attend prayer meetings. If you don't become a church member, your children are not going to become church members. All of these things fall to the parents as their children imitate them. One other thing, two other things. One wife wrote and said, my husband puts his hand on our child every night and blesses her. And finally, these parents wrote with humility. Listen to this. I struggle to lead family devotions. I know it's something I need to continue to work on and to do most more consistently. Here is another one that was said. Sometimes I get discouraged about reading how the Puritans trained their kids or reading articles about family worship. How does anybody have the time or energy to do this right? The bar seems impossibly high. I have to remind myself that it's the pattern you're setting that counts, not necessarily the great quality. I suspect when the kids are older, 
and think back on devotions, they won't recall a specific instance. Instead, they'll remember the regular cadence that was set and stuck to over a period of time. And finally, one of the, one of the parents wrote the kind of three rules that they try to live up to. The family worship should be consistent, short, this is critical, and sweet. We welcome our kids to sit on our lap and get cozy with each other. We praise them when they engage with God's word or when they pray well. In closing, two things. Number one, these sheets are made available to you in their entirety. They are in the back of the church and they can be found at the welcome desk, at the children's desk in the children's wing, and at two music stands. I urge particularly those of you who are young parents to grab them and others of you if you can elbow your way in front of them. They are at the back of the sanctuary near the quiet rooms, also on stands right there and right there I can see them from where we are. They are also, this, these eight pages, seven pages, are available in the bulletin on page 12. The very bottom line or two gives the link that you can find this on your computer. I urge everybody in the church, grandparents too, aunts and uncles, to get this link or get a hard copy and to read it and think about. And lastly, in the way of practicality, no doubt you've all seen this on the back tables. It's the list of all the homes that are open to our church for the week of prayer. Thank you for those of you who have come to many weeks of prayer. Thank you for those who have hosted many weeks of prayer and have led weeks of prayer. And triply thank you, those of you who have brought your children to weeks of prayer. I can say that some of the best weeks of prayer I've ever been a part of in this church, and it's been for well over 30 years, probably close to 35, has been when families have brought their children and you hear little kids pray with adults. Your kids need to see you praying with other adults, and they need to see you bringing them to do so. Every pastor that stands before a congregation feels the following weight. It is the weight of just sounding legalistic or putting a finger in people's chest or yelling at people and making them feel bad. But I tell you, for your own sake, if for no other sake, consider these things we're talking about because Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 says the following. A wise son brings joy to his father. I can tell you this, if you pour this kind of energy with God's grace into your children, confessing often because you'll blow it often, I certainly blew it often, my wife blew it often, if you do that, your kids are liable to bring you extreme joy. There is no joy in the planet like watching your children walk with God. Suppose you are a parent and you have never done much of this. Tell God, Lord, I'm sorry, but it will change. It will change this week. I urge you fathers to talk to your wives. Wives, talk to your husbands. 
And if only one of you is a Christian, or only one of you wants to go down this road, then say, God, by your grace, although it's difficult, I will do this alone. And God will honor you for what you do.